Hello and welcome to another episode of Brothers Creed Podcast. We're talking about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we're going to talk about stories from the Wild West. The, the Wild West is kind of a, a very romantic period in the American history that has been romanticized in, in countless films. And I think it's like the shortest period in history that's ever that's like been romanticized so much, you know. Uh, it, it's such an interesting piece uh, of American history. I mean, heck, half the foreigners nowadays still think we're all cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> I had a girl, I knew a girl once that, uh, this is back when I was working at Goldman. Uh, she was from China, or, or, or yeah, I don't know if she was from China. I think she was from uh, one, of, one of those Asian countries, Japan or China or Korea, something like that. I can't remember exactly which one she was from. But she came over and she said, yeah, my mom was so nervous about me, me coming to America because she said all Americans carry guns with them, you know, what, we every don't? day. <laughs> we don't? Like holstered guns, like in the Wild West. She's like, watch <laughs> no, many John no, Wayne not, movies. Yeah, not like concealed carry, like holstered guns, yeah, like exactly. six shooters on her hips. Yeah, I'm like, well, you know. I wish, man. You haven't been in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, that was kind of funny, but... Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, love some. We have some great stories, some folk heroes, uh, and some bad guys. We're going to talk about just a lot of different things. The Wild West was wild. We're going to talk about some of that today. So let's go ahead and jump in. All right, let's do it. You can't climb the ladder of success with your hands in the pocket. We will not go quietly into the night. They tell me you're a man with true grit. I am the one who knocks. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! That's how winning is done! Okay, so first to start off, I want to talk about a little bit of the history of the Wild West. Um, it was definitely an interesting time in the history of the United States. Uh, and I'll say United States, but actually it involved a couple different countries. Oh, yeah? So, um, I guess the whole time period of what you would consider like the Wild West was from uh, the the mid-1600s, so like 1650s, all the way until 1920. 1650s? Yeah. So, really? So, okay. so, this is my, where it comes in. My impression of the Wild West is it's been about like, since like the 18... 1800s. Well, I guess, I guess what do you like. I don't consider colonialization of like the eastern states that necessarily the Wild West. I mean, yes, it is a wild, and, and like in the term, the term Wild well, no, this West. This is this this is uh, this is what West as in west of the Mississippi. So yeah. this is this is out there. Um, but, so so let's just say so so I I started that early back uh-huh. because um, you know. Whenever we think about the Wild West, we think about what cowboys, cowboys and Indians, ghost towns, ghost towns. We think about mining, mining yep. towns. We think about the railroad. We think about you know gunslingers, and we think about all that sort of kind of stuff. Well, the telegraph. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna kind of some of that is true. I, I think all of it's based on truth to a certain extent, but. There's some reasons why we all think of that. Post Civil War, like Hell on Wheels, basically. That's the yeah, <laughs> yeah. that movie so, show Hell on Wheels. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, in uh, let's see. So once the uh, Spanish settlers came and they settled in, uh, like even like conquistadors and stuff like that, they came in south to South America from Spain. And they settled, and they started using horses to wrangle cattle. Um, and that tradition, um, and I say South America, but South America and Central America, right, to now what we know today is Mexico. So once Mexico declared its independence and won its own independence, those Spanish um, uh, cowboys, I guess we could call them, right, uh, were uh, vaqueros? Yeah, vaqueros were. Um, that's kind of what that turned into in Mexico, and so the Mexico had the vaqueros. But in even in 1821, a third of the United States still belonged to Mexico. So we had we had bought the Louisiana Purchase, I think, in like 1803 or something like that. Um, in 1821, the Spanish still owned everything from like Texas all the way to California. And like halfway up the country, yeah, and 
So what we know as the deserty Southwest was all Mexico. Was all Mexico. Yeah. And so all of that area was the vaqueros, right? These cowboys, these Mexican cowboys. And then as the United States started its started its um, you know, you have westward expansion. Westward expansion. You have the gold rush starting to happen in California. You have uh, religious groups traveling across. You have people looking uh, for opportunity and stuff. And and so this western expansion starts to happen. There's some wars intermingled in there with uh, the Spanish American War and us conquering some of this land back to what we know as the modern day United States. But a lot of those traditions. Um, uh, of those those Spanish uh, uh, vaqueros, basically rolled into American heritage and and, and American uh, cowboys, right? And even some of the things is whenever the people that couldn't uh, pronounce the Americans that didn't speak Spanish and couldn't pronounce vaqueros, they called them buckaroos. That's what they called the, ah, the yeah. Spanish cowboys. They called them buckaroos. Huh. And then you know even you see in today things like. Um, certain words are used like lasso, right? That's a Spanish word. Um, uh, chaps, right? For riding horses, like on your legs. That's that's uh, comes from from Spanish stuff. You know, the the cowboy hat resembles the sombrero to a certain extent, and there's like all these different things that kind of are implemented from those these vaqueros that came uh, previously. So, um, one interesting thing is you think of like. Um, gunslingers in the Wild West. It was like, oh, everybody was just walking around with guns. Actually, a lot of the research that I was doing was that most settlements had very strict firearm regulations within the town itself. That whenever you came into a town, you had to turn in your firearms. To the sheriff or something? To the sheriff. And one of the... Um, or to go to shootout with the sheriff. Yeah, I can't I can't <laughs> remember. One of like the, the these big... Uh, shootouts or like these big famous shootouts was all started. I don't know if it was like the okay corral or whatever else. I, I can't remember what it was, but it all started because this one person did not want to give up his weapons to the sheriff when he came into the town. Um, hmm. You know, and you were allowed to have weapons and everything else, but in the specific settlement, there was actually uh, some regulations th- that were in place. And so maybe it, it was there to keep it, I guess, less wild. What's that Johnny Cash song about? Don't take your guns to town, son. Yeah, like a, the lady tells her son not to take his guns to town because you, you'll use them. He ends up doing it and he gets killed <laughs> the yeah. first time into town. Yeah. Um, so I just thought it was a little bit of the history. Um, and interesting, you think oh, the Wild West, you think you know, oh, cowboys and Indians, but really, the cowboys never really fought the Indians. It was the army fought the Indians. It was the United States government which was fighting the Indians and uh, conquering more land and, and different things like that. That was where the majority of the struggle was, was between the United States government, the post-Civil War government, and um, and, uh, these, Native and, American and tribes. These, these Native American tribes. And those Native American tribes, those are, you know, I did that episode on episode 50 on Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark had gone and made truces with a lot of these different tribes. Yep. And then at different points, you know, they they broke that truce. Yeah, yeah, the federal government well, decided we, to. The, the federal government did that, not and possibly the, the tribes, I don't know yeah. to what extent, but yeah. more likely the federal government. And I thought it was I thought it was interesting. It said that there was two strategies that the that the government, that the US government used in conquering this the the, the this land, right? There was you know well, there's a lot of times people say, and maybe this is not gonna be the most popular uh idea, but a lot of people say, oh, the, the white man took the land from the Indians. Well, I mean, the the Native American tribes were constantly battling and warring with, the ch- with each other anyway. And so they were constantly taking and conquering land and taking slaves from other tribes and everything else and killing each other. And so what happened was somebody who was bigger and stronger and who had weapons, more sophisticated weapons, came in and ended up, Take take, taking line. everybody, yeah, but they and so it's not they have skinwalkers, yeah. <laughs> we talked about that, yeah. Before. And so it's not so much that you know the oh the big white the big bad white man came in. I mean, we were just the strongest that came in. They were all warring and feuding with each other anyway. Yeah. Um, but one of the strategies I thought this was really interesting that uh, the U.S. government used was number one was to shoot the people right in in battle and in in conquering these people. And the second, what one, do you mean shoot the people? Like battles, like take over their land, like like push them out, force them out with battle. Oh, okay. So 
shoot people, and the okay. second was shoot their food, and the the so they slaughter all the buffalo. So the the mass majority of Native Americans in the specific areas or out west were uh, they made their entire livelihoods off of the buffalo, the American buffalo. Yeah, and I had never, I didn't really, re- I knew there was a ton of them, but I didn't realize the extent. The bison population in the, I don't know, maybe mid-1800s was 40 million bison. Oh, my gosh. That is in the United States. a ton. 40 million. And there's stories of, of the the trains uh, going across the country, and people would just sit in the trains and just shoot these bison off the side of the, just They would just shoot them and just kill them for sport, you know? Wow. And so... Over the the period of of you know the, these years in this western expansion, that population from forty million bison dwindled to only a few hundred bison, yeah. a few hundred from forty million. I mean, can you imagine even? Can you imagine if that didn't happen? What the? I mean, we would be eating bison more than we'd be eating cow yeah, yeah or beef yeah that's crazy that 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 humans had that big of an impact on that species yeah and i think a lot of it was just more people were moving out west and so there was more mouths to feed but at the same point it was a tactic of the government was to just destroy the food source hmm. <clears throat> which is interesting and terrible in and of itself but um so how do we get the perception of the wild west that we know as it as we know it today uh, there's a couple of different things. Uh, mostly, it comes from uh, entertainment, right? Um, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, he would go around and he went around with Annie Oakley and, and some of these other people mm-hmm. that they'd have, you know, their their guns and their cowboy outfits and their six shooters and they'd be shooting things and just kind of yeehaw and stuff like that. And it was extremely popular. So he went from town to town to town to town to town basically presenting this idea of the wild west you know the yeah. the the last frontier or whatever oh that's space but that's the final frontier oh that's the final frontier it's not a, the last <laughs> frontier come on <laughs> sorry sorry um and then you know and then we went into the 1900s and really kind of like the the early to mid 1900s that converted and it started going into uh film right we they started um idolizing the the cowboy um in films you have like john wayne you know this the the ultimate cowboy and then it kind of grew into clint eastwood and the good the bad and the ugly right and these guys are just these this this idealistic life of the cowboy right none of those up on the range yeah none of those guys i'd ever i mean i've seen plenty of those movies i've never seen them drive any cattle yeah (laughs) john wayne probably did well, I mean, maybe, but it's just it's just interesting how, you know, uh but that's really kind of where we get where we get a lot of the ideas that we have today was from entertainment. Yeah. It's crazy. So let's talk about some stories from the Wild West. I have this one about uh it's a kind of a short one, but it's a crazy story about weird, you know, justice, mob justice and kind of how barbaric the time was. Uh, at least in, in some cases. Uh, in 1870, a man was making his way through a lonely mountain of New Mexico when he came across a stout wood, wood cabin tucked at the foot of Palo Flechalo Pass. The owner introduced himself as Charles Kennedy and invited his new acquaintance inside for a meal. As Kennedy's Ute wife served dinner, Ute Indian tribe served dinner, the traveler sat next to the couple's young son and asked if there were other Native Americans nearby. The boy looked back at him for a moment and then answered, Can't you smell the one papa put under the floor? The unfortunate traveler stumbled into the lair of one of the West's most notorious killers, Charles Kennedy. Killed at least 14, who killed at least 14 people who stopped at his isolated homestead on their way through the pass. After shooting the traveler, Kennedy beat his son to death to near for nearly warning the man in time to escape. The murder of their son was too much for Kennedy's wife, I guess that's what tipped it over the edge, Mm -hmm. who slipped out of their house. She was probably held captive too, uh, in her defense, while her husband was drunk and walked to Elizabethtown, where she made a full confession 
After unearthing the grisly evidence, the townsfolk dragged Kennedy behind a horse until he died and then staked his severed head outside the local inn. Dude. <laughs> That's like some Game of Thrones stuff right there. Seriously, man. It's like, like a, a serial killer from the Wild West. Yeah, it's crazy. So, like, the thing is, like, I wish we could do that to some of these guys now, man. Like, that Larry Nasser guy, the guy that, like, molested all those gymnastic those girls for young years girls, and years. Yeah. And years. Or, like, Epstein... Or heck, there's Pedophil- so many pedophile people. island. Bill Clinton, you know, jeez. Oh, jeez. Watch <laughs> How many out. times he's 27 times on that Lolita Express to, to pedophile island? Yeah, can't tell me that's not a coincidence. Yeah. Oh, um, they'll make you disappear. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Um, so that was a kind of a cool story of well, just a wild story of you know some of the things that happened back then. Uh, still. Uh, you know, stuff like bad stuff still happens now. And it, yeah. it wasn't like humans were, were very similar back then. There just was a little bit less, law, more, a little bit more lawlessness. Well, and I think, I think too, that there wasn't as many, there wasn't as many people, number one, and there wasn't as many like law enforcement. And just, you think of it, just the distance you had to travel to get anything done was done by either train, horseback, or, you know, a horse and buggy, or just walking. And so, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to to do a criminal investigation if it takes you know weeks just to travel to the place of the scene of the crime. Yeah, and the technology and everything else. And so, I think a lot of times the punishments were more barbaric because there was just <laughs> there was just less there was less you could do. You know, they were trying to deter that making the the punishments more severe to help deter it from happening um, when it did. This yeah. was interesting. Here, I have another story about a Go law. Uh, this yep. one's about a lawman. Uh, it's kind of interesting. In, in 1881, uh, so kind of like that that mid late 80 1800s period. Uh, that's that's what I feel like in my mind is like kind of that wild west um, when some of these towns have been established a little bit in, in the west. So in El Paso, Texas, uh, El Paso, Texas hired a legendary gunfighter, Dallas Student uh, as their new marshal, he successfully cleaned up the town, but only by launching a reign of terror in which he killed numerous locals in shootouts. It was said that he was the church bell of the tar. It was said that he used the church bell for target practice and was often visibly drunk. When the town council tried to fire him, Studemeyer charged in and dared them to take his guns. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, now we're. We have a different enemy, you know. Yeah. Uh, as Studemeyer's most famous most famous gunfight took place just three days after taking the job. The f- the four dead in five seconds fight that's what the fight was called uh, started when a local ruffian named John Hale grabbed a gun from his friend George Campbell and killed one of Studemeyer's constables. Studem Studemeyer immediately whipped out his pistol and gunned down Hale, a random bystander, and Campbell, who loudly shouted that he wanted nothing to do with the fight. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't my fight. <laughs> yeah, he got shot. It was his gun the guy grabbed, though. And the last part here says, Campbell had been, the guy who got shot, had been good friends with the wealthy, with the wealthy Manning brothers, uh, distant relation of Peyton Manning, no, just kidding, uh, <laughs> who hired a man, oh, get some static here, who hired a man named Bill Johnson to assassinate Studemeyer in revenge. Unfortunately, Johnson, uh, he discharged a shotgun early, allowing Studemeyer to whirl around and shoot his testicles off. (laughs) He quickly bled to death, and Studemeyer remained in El Paso until he died in a shootout uh, with the Manning brothers 18 months later. Oh, geez. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Um. Uh, another one, one of the stories that I had uh, also is from uh, uh, for a lawman. Um, what a lawman? Oh, a lawman! A lawman! A lawman! A lawman. Is, that, it's like, is it like a shaman? <laughs> a lawman. Um, so his name was Bass Reeves, and they say that he is the the true Lone Ranger, or actually, he's uh, he's also been called the original Django, Texas Ranger, like Walker Texas Ranger. No, like Lone Ranger. Oh, okay, like. Lone Ranger in Tonto. Oh, okay. Right? So, um, he was uh, a little bit of introduction. So, he was the first black deputy U.S. Marshal, 
west of the Mississippi River. Uh, He worked mostly in Arkansas and Oklahoma Territory. During his 32-year career as deputy marshal, he was responsible for arresting over 3,000 felons and killing 14 men without being shot once. That's that's a a storied career. Yeah. And so a little bit about his early life. He was born uh, into slavery in Arkansas in 1838. Um. When the Civil War came around, um, his, I guess, his enslaver, right? His master went and fought for the Confederate uh, side, and he went as well um, and and fought as well. Uh, But it's interesting, it says, after uh, the story goes that... um, that Bass Reeves and George Reeves, who was his who was his master, um, had an altercation over a card game that they were playing. Um, Bass severely beat his his enslaver and fled into the uh, Indian Territory, where he lived among the Cherokee, Cree, and Seminoles. Uh, Bass stayed with the Native American tribes for a while and learned their languages until he was freed by uh, the the abolishment of slavery in 1865. Um, so he bought, he brought some of the most dangerous criminals of the time. Um, and this was, uh, 18, like, uh, you know, late, late 1800s, kind of like the same time frame as you were saying. Um, so 1860s, 70s. Uh, he was never wounded despite having had his hat and his belt shot off on two separate occasions. Dang. Imagine having your belt shot off. I mean, it's like... Yeah. That was close, yeah. man. Yeah, exactly. Glad we wore that <laughs> Texas belt buckle. <laughs> yeah, seriously, and having his hat shot off. Um, and so, in addition to being a marksman with a rifle and a revolver, he was also an extremely uh, superior detective. He had really good detective skills that he used throughout his his whole career, and he was really well known for. Uh, not just his fighting acumen, but his like smarts as well and his mm. detective nature. Cool. Um, so a couple of accounts of uh, uh, different encounters that he had with some of these ruffians that uh, are these felons that he was bringing in. So in 1882, um, an account suggests that Reeves arrested Bell Starr, who was an outlaw and a horse thief, after she turned herself in when she heard that the legendary Reeves was looking for. She's just like, uh, his I reputation tur- preceded yeah, himself. I turned, I turned myself in. She's just like, he heard that she was, that she heard that he was looking for. Her. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> um, in 1889, uh, Reeves was pursuing, uh, Tom's story. Oh, the Tom story gang. And so it was like this gang of, you know, a couple of different people that were going and they were robbing banks and trains and everything's like that. Um, and they were uh, stealing horses and, and had a, a huge operation. Um, so, uh, was it? so it says, uh, so he pursued the gang um, and broke up their, their horse thief operation by waiting for the gang on the side of the road, pretending that he was a traveler. Uh, once they came by, they said something to him. Reeves whipped out his gun, turned around, and shot Tom's story dead. And the rest of his gang and all the other uh, members of the gang just scattered. And then, because he had cut off the head of the snake, everybody, you know, the, the gang never got back together. And it kind of just disbanded the whole gang. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, one of the most interesting stories that 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 Bass Reeves has was he had to arrest his own son for murder. No way. Yeah. So uh, Benjamin Benji Reeves was charged with murder of his own wife. Despite uh, obviously being disturbed and, and just, you know, extremely shaken by the whole situation, Reeves, he insisted that he was going to be responsible for bringing in his own son. And so he went out, with this bounty on his son's head and he went and he tracked down his son and he arrested him and took him in, took him to jail. Um, his son was in jail for, I think like 14 years. And then after that, he uh, said his sentence was, 
I guess, finished or something like that. And so they, they let him go. And it said he lived the rest of his life an honorable man. Huh. <laughs> but how would that be to have to arrest your own son for doing something like that? I mean, that'd, that'd be heartbreaking. Yeah. Also, um, can you be an honorable man after you've killed your wife? I don't know. Maybe there, well, there, there is repentance. Yeah, you can, re- you can, I mean, you can I guess. There, well, that, plus, that's God for God to decide. Not yeah. Me. Plus, I don't know the I don't know the situation that I mean, it could have been self defense. It could have been yeah. you know I don't know the specific situation. But uh, the last thing about Bass Reeves was in 1887 he was arrested uh, himself under the suspicion of murdering his cook William Leach. So he had a cook that traveled around with him mm-hmm. and he died. This cook was killed, mm-hmm. um, and so they arrested him under suspicion that he killed him. And Reeves actually went up and testified that the whole thing was, the death was accidental. He was cleaning his gun next to the fire one night and they were just sitting around the fire and he was cleaning it and it discharged, it went off and it shot across the fire and <laughs> shot his cook. Oh my gosh, that's so convenient. <laughs> I well, mean, but the thing know, is, he, right, right between the eyes, while well, I was just cleaning my gun, and you know, right between his eyes. Yeah, but it, it was crazy, and and I think they were good friends too. I mean, they'd been together for a long time and stuff, and so actually, after all the testimony and everything happened, he was acquitted of all charges. Oh wow! Um, interesting. Dang. Interestingly enough, so uh, Reeves died in uh, nineteen ten of of Bright's disease at the age of seventy two. I don't know Bright's what Bright's disease is. Look it up and let us know. Nineteen seventy two, is that what you said? No, he was seventy two years old. Oh. And he died in nineteen ten. Okay. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, what what a life. I mean, that's just he he, he was a a US deputy marshal and just roamed around all the territories in the Wild West from town to town to town with you know, I don't know, I envision like these wanted posters, right? Of like drawings yeah. of people and he's just like you know, going around and it's like the Mandalorian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. I mean, he's just Except like he's a deputy marshal, though. Yeah, he's just he probably doesn't get the bounties paid out. I don't know. Marshals don't get the bounties. I don't think. Yeah, probably not. But um, th- you know, there was at one point where he kind of settled down and he became um, a police officer in a, a more settled town. Whenever he was older, um, but then he ended up getting sick and had to retire from that. But just cool guy. Cool. I have I have uh, two other stories, but I want to share kind of the, the bigger one first, um, and, and then I'll share the last one. Um, so this one is about an American legend named Porter Rockwell. So uh, Porter Walk Rockwell was he, he's basically one of the OG legends of the Wild West. Uh, he inspired um, American frontiersmen like Wild Bill Hickok and also Buffalo Bill. Uh, he's quoted in a Western by John Wayne for famously saying, I never killed anyone who didn't need killing. And that was uh, one of uh, Porter Rockwell's Sounds quotes. about right. Uh, he, Rockwell killed many men as a gunfighter, uh, a religious enforcer, and a deputy uh, United States Marshal as well. Uh, Porter became a loyal friend and protector of Joseph Smith, uh, who was the, uh, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and and the leader for a time and, until he was killed himself, um, and they were actually childhood friends. Uh, he, Joseph Smith was six years older than he was. Childhood friends, and uh, they went from New York uh, to Nauvoo, and then to Missouri, and then Porter ended up continuing on with uh, the, the Latter Day Saints all the way over to, to Utah um, when they went west uh, in that, and then he lived out the rest of his days in Utah. Now, Rockwell is uh, humorously remembered for his unusual war cry. The gunslinger often screamed the word wheat as he launched into battle. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like, yeet. Like, I, I wheat. Know, what does he say? Wheat. And then he just go into battle. Uh, that, was, that was hilarious. Um, uh, and um, so kind of some of the history here. So uh, with the... The Latter-day Saints, at the time they were known as the Mormons, uh, they were living in uh, Missouri, in a certain spot in Missouri. And uh, there was a lot of tension in this area between uh, the governor and some of the the people that lived there, and then all this huge influx of people uh, that were coming in to establish a place to live. 
because you know they were kind of all coming together to live in one place. And in 1838, governor the the governor of Missouri signed Executive Order 44, which is known as the Extermination Order. So this governor's name was Governor Boggs, and it, this order quote it directed that quote the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated to or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Uh, their outrage are beyond all description. Their outrages are beyond all description. So that was kind of a quote, close quote uh, there. So they basically said, get them out or kill them. And that was the executive order that he did across the state. The governor of the whole state. Yeah. So our trusted government officials saying these things. Uh <laughs> And then in 18, so that was, you know, basically what happened after that is uh, these militias and mobs just came and like literally forced people out of their homes in the middle of the winter. Um, just like, you have to leave our state. And so they... Men, they, men, women, and children. Yeah. They just forced them out of their homes uh, and then luckily and they, to the next county over. Uh, and uh, and people were able to kind of uh, go in and seek refuge somewhere else Uh Mostly and just intense throughout that winter, uh, but uh, it was it was a very difficult period uh, for the people for the Mormons in that area. Uh, in 1842, someone tried to kill Governor Boggs uh, by shooting him through a window as he read a newspaper in his study. He survived, and they tried to convict Porter Rockwell of this attempted murder. So Rockwell, in his defense, he said he he never shot at anybody. He said, if I shoot, they got shot. <laughs> and uh, Joseph Smith was even... Qu- that was his defense? Yeah, that was his defense. And then Joseph Smith qu- was questioned also about... There was this, like the trial, and he was also questioned, uh, and Smith denied it. It was Rockwell. And he asked uh, how he could be... They asked, well, how can you be so sure? And Smith allegedly replied, he's still alive, isn't he? <laughs> He's still alive. It wasn't <laughs> the governor. The governor's still alive. Yeah, it, it, like there would be no a failed task, failed assassination attempt. If he's still alive, it wasn't Porter Rockwell, because he doesn't shoot at people. He shoots people. He shoots people. Get shot. Um, Rockwell, Porter Rockwell. He actually served eight months in jail for for. Well, it, it didn't serve. He was in jail for eight months as they tried to charge him, but eventually he was acquitted of the charges. Uh, there was not enough evidence to uh, convict him for attempting to assassinate Governor Boggs. Uh, so after this, uh, Porter's released from jail. Uh, he actually w- walked most of the way to Nauvoo, Illinois. He arrived at Joseph Smith's house on Christmas Day, 1843. Uh, as Joseph Smith and his friends were having a supper uh, party uh, during the festivities, Joseph recounted later, uh, a man with long hair and falling... Fa- a long hair falling over his shoulders, apparently drunk, uh, came in and acted like a Missourian. So obviously some of the enemies. Uh, I requested the captain of the police to put him out the door. A scuffle ensued, and to my great surprise and joy untold, I discovered it was my long, tired, warm, and cruelly persecuted friend, Orrin Porter Rockwell. And so, um, you know, at that time, Joseph Smith threw, threw his arms around him and, uh, you know, embraced his his childhood friend who had been loyal to him. Uh, and at, at that time, uh, you know, Joseph Smith within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he, has, uh, he is a prophet similar to uh, Noah or Moses. And, uh, and so that's what the, the belief is about Joseph Smith. So Joseph Smith made a prophecy about Porter Rockwell. And the prophecy is, he said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord, you, Orrin Porter Rockwell, so long as you shall remain loyal and true to the to thy faith, need fear no enemy. Cut not thy hair, and no bullet or blade can harm thee. So kind of similar. Kind of like the promise of Samson. Exactly, similar to Samson. So Porter Rockwell, uh, he actually did cut his hair once, though. But it was for a good cause. Uh, there was a, a lady that... Uh, an older woman that was stricken with typhoid fever, and because of that, she lost all of her hair. And he cut his hair so that she could make a wig. Uh, so it was the only time he cut his hair. But after that, he wore his hair real long. Uh, pretty much, that was the only instance that he cut his hair. So um, there was, uh, eventually, as you go forward in time, uh, there was, uh, Joseph Smith was killed by a mob. Uh, he was shot by a mob while he was being held in jail, actually. 
uh, and uh, Porter Rockwell uh, went and he shot the guy. He shot and killed Frank Worrell, who led the mob, uh, who was responsible for leading that mob. And uh, so Porter Rockwell went, went with the um, the Mormons west to Utah. He later moved to Utah, and the, and uh, he became the deputy marshal for Salt Lake, and he remained a peace officer until his death. Now, uh, he, he also owned a hotel and a brewery uh, for a time as well. Uh, he, he, he actually died of natural causes at the age of 60 in 1878. That's old for that. I mean, it's old for... Yeah. And uh, within... 1800s. It, it's just, he's kind of a, a very controversial figure within the church. Uh, uh, and he is kind of a, seen as a destroying angel, you know, sent to protect the leaders of the church and, and, and the, and the saints in the Utah area. Uh, but to others, uh, he was just a strong, uh, an outlaw and a strong, and a strong man for the church. Um, they point out there's many cases where he, you know, killed someone and it was debatable whether he should or shouldn't have, or, uh, whether it was warranted or not, there, there's several cases out there where they're like, well, you know, sh- should he have actually done that? Um, the Salt Lake Tribune, which is a newspaper in Salt Lake, absolutely hated this guy. Uh, the the op-ed that they wrote when he when he died, it was like the most gruesome like tear down of his character you can imagine. Whereas when he died, uh, Joseph Smeling, Fielding Smith, who was um, the prophet of the church at the time, who was actually the nephew of Joseph Smith, uh, he gave a glowing uh, eulogy at Porter Rockwell's. You know, he said he wasn't a perfect man, but he was an honorable man, and he was loyal to his faith and loyal to those around him. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. But the Salt Lake Tribune trashed him, and they said that the Salt Lake Tribune said that uh, they estimate that he killed over a hundred men. Uh, <laughs> but you know who knows that could be totally exaggerated <laughs> estimated yeah, yeah the, the, over 100 people died at his hands uh so whether he whether he was a an outlaw or you see him as a, a protector of, of of the righteous uh whatever that may be he was definitely an influential figure and uh, i would say a badass as well and so uh, for sure that's a kind of a cool story there's a lot more to porter rockwell but he, he's quite the interesting character yeah there's tons of cool stories about um, him and and you know the Bass Reeves guys that we talked about. You know, I wish we had probably do a whole episode on just you know the stories about one of these guys. Um, but I uh, I had another story here that was kind of interesting. Um, this is a story about cowboys and aliens. Nice. So um, long before the these uh, these off world visitors showed up in. Roswell, which is kind of the, you know, Roswell, New Mexico is kind of one of the, and I think that was like in the 1950s or something like that. Um, That was kind of like the, one of the big first potential encounters with aliens and stuff like that that was recorded in in the United States. So in 1896, uh, there was two men from Lodi, California that were reported and attempted a dub- abduction by three alien strangers. This was in 1896. Wow. So you got to think about 1896. I mean, what's the technology in 1896? Like barely. I mean, a- I think it was like 1860, 70, 80 was like the Wright brothers were like just barely like learning to fly. I mean, yeah. they're flying like a mile maybe at the most or, you know, 800 feet at the beginning. Um, so it was 1896, a couple years after that, but, uh, that year, Colonel HG Shaw and Camille Spooner were traveling, traveling from the small town of Lodi to Fresno citrus fair. When they said that they came across three beings that were not human is how they described it. Mm. Um, so they were reportedly seven feet tall and very, very slender. Slender man. The grays. Those are grays. Yeah, the grays. Definitely sound like grays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it says, according to Shaw, the aliens tried to abduct the two men, uh, but Shaw and Spooner were much too heavy for these 
very skinny aliens to pick up. So they said they kind of fought them off a little bit, and their attempt was foiled, and these three beings leapt back into their spacecraft and flew off. And it kind of gave like a a general description of this face, uh, you know, spacecraft. It was kind of this uh, uh, saucer dish like thing that was silver, and they got in, and it flew away really fast. Wow! But I mean, this is this is eighteen hundreds. Yeah, it's crazy. Like this is probably one of the first. Well, I mean, there's cave drawings of aliens, yeah. right? So maybe not the first encounters, but like. In modern history, yeah, in modern modern history, what we think of as you know, well, there's just actually a couple hundred years ago, yeah, people seeing aliens. I was actually doing Maybe. some research and I found a different story too that was similar, but I can't remember exactly what it was. But one of the things that kind of stuck with me is that uh, there was an entity that died. It was like a crash or something, and an entity died, and the locals took the entity and they they buried it. Oh, I think I saw that too. It was like there was like a cigar-shaped ship or something that crashed and... It was all kind of weird metals and stuff. Yeah, And they buried the entity. And there's people that are still looking for that burial site today. And there's a couple that claim that they found it, but they can't... The the county won't let them dig it up. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because this is like... This is like the 1800s. This isn't... I mean, the technology and the, the, the... I mean... People hadn't seen movies or watched TV or seen all these different kind of things. Like, I mean, there's there was no airplane, metal airplanes flying around. Oh yeah. I mean, for them to say, oh, you know, yeah, it was a a, a metal kind of saucer looking airplane. Yeah. You know, that took off really fast. It's like how would how would they even think of that? Yeah. It's when crazy. They, yeah, it's so. I don't know. Just that was an interesting story. So one of the stories I have here, uh, it's about a lost Spanish galleon laden mm. with gold and pearls stranded in the California de- desert. Huh. How in the that? desert? In the desert, yeah. So it, this is a story. So according to the legend, King Philip III of Spain commissioned the galleon in 1610. Galleon a, is like a ship. Yeah, it's one like a giant Spanish ship. Okay. Uh, it was built what is now Mexico City of... Mexican Acapulco, Mexico, took two years to complete. Uh, Captain Juan de Iturbe is said to have sailed the vessel up the Gulf of California on a pearl hunting trip. So there are different accounts of what happened next. It says that sometimes he may have stopped briefly to, um, in the in the Baja California, uh, to help out a sinking ship, but also and it took on the sinking ship's cargo. The other other part of the legend is that he kind of uh, duped some Native Americans into giving them uh, a bunch of pearls. But whatever the case is, is that the galleon eventually arrived at the top of the Gulf and continued northwest up the Colorado River and followed the river to one of its uh, much shallower straits, deep into what is now California. So the captain, it is believed, uh, hoped to find the long-imagined sea passage connecting the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Instead, the galleon was swept up by a fast-moving tidal bore, uh, a wave formed by which is a wave formed by water funnel through a narrow passageway, and it carried the sh- uh, over the and the ship was carried over a shallow desert and all the way to Lake Cahila, uh, just northwest of the Salton Sea. At this point, somewhere around the 34th parallel, the galleon was apparently dis- deposited on a sandbank, stranded in the middle of the California lowlands. Uh, the captain deserted the ship and his loot and disappeared into the desert forever. So, in 1870, in the Wild West, late 1800s, a guy named Charles Klusker set out from San Bernardino, California to find the 255-year-old Spanish ship uh, loaded with pearls and other treasures. He was a veteran of the American-Mexican War, uh, and he was 60 years old at the time. Uh, he was a lifelong adventurer who had come to California years earlier in search of gold. He's uh, just going on legend at this point. Yeah, he's like, according to the newspaper reports, he discovered a Spanish galleon in the Colorado desert. Uh, but I don't know if it's Colorado or California. I'm not exactly sure. It's just Colorado here, but I'm pretty sure it's said California earlier. Anyway, uh, in the southwestern corner of the state, 
uh, but had been forced to return to civilization after running out of water and nearly dying of dehydration. So the thing is, is that that's kind of a, a common theme. Is like he went out. I, I read the thing is he got like three barrels full of water, and he's just like, I know, I know what this is. I'm gonna go get it. He went out to go get it. Um, apparently, he was said to be an honest man or whatever, uh, but he he wasn't able to find it again. Uh, again, later in 1933, there was another attempt. So Myrtle Bott also claimed to have seen the ship. Bot was hiking with her husband in the Anza Borrego Desert near Mexico after learning from a prospector about a ship jutting from the side of a nearby canyon called Cane Break. She managed to get a glimpse of from a distance. She later claimed, also much like Cluster, Bots and her husband were ill-equipped to hike uh, and decided they would return later to see the ship up close. However, uh, they too were un- unable to find it when they went back. And they think that it was because of an earthquake that occurred. But so she saw it at a distance and then she's like, Oh, I'm gonna come back and find it and then they weren't able to find it again. So you need to just drop a pin on your smartphone. I know, man. Again, nineteen forty eight, there was a group of three UCLA students, uh, led by John Grasson. They attempted to find the ship, but they actually believed it was a Viking ship, not a Spanish ship. They don't I, I don't know where that came from, but they believed it was a Viking ship, but they weren't able, surprise, surprise. They weren't able to find it. So hmm. it and, was like a mirage thing. Maybe it was like maybe. A, an outcropping of rocks that looked like a ship or something like that. Maybe, but maybe, or 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 maybe there's a Spanish ship full of giant golden Spanish pearls. galleon full of golden pearls and and all kinds of treasures laying in the desert somewhere. You think with all like the drones and Google Earth and everything that we have today, satellites. Well, that's probably to, buried by now. I guess that's true. I mean, the weather would just destroy that thing, though. That's true, especially in the middle of the desert and the winds and sand blowing. Yeah, probably this is just a big hill right now, you know? Yeah. Um, couple. I had a couple other stories. Um, you know, I, I was going to share a little bit about Jesse James. A lot of people know about Jesse James. Um, but another one that I kind of liked is uh, uh, the story of, of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, so they made a movie about that, right? Um, I think it was like Robert Redford, I think was Butch Cassidy or, um, it's a good movie. Uh, but basically, uh, Robert Leroy Parker was known as Butch Cassidy. Um, and, uh, this was in the 1800s. Um, he was a wanted man, him and his accomplice, Harry Alonzo Longabo Longabow also known as the Sundance Kid, um, they both together robbed trains, banks, and uh, led a whole posse of criminals that they called the Wild Bunch. Right, so it was like this this this, this gang that they had. They led this posse called the Wild Bunch, and there's a bunch of them. They just ran around and robbed trains and and banks and different things like that. They were outlaws. Um, so. Uh, so uh, Butch and Butch and the kid, um, they wreaked havoc most places, uh, uh, kind of all around the West. But this was kind of the the northern West. So this was in Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, and then parts of uh, northern Mexico, northern New Mexico. Excuse me. Um, but they were the law enforcement at the time were hot on their heels, and they were feeling the heat. I mean, they were getting close to catching them. So. They decided to uh, evade law enforcement by fleeing the country. So they went through Mexico. They made uh, an escape through Mexico down into South America. And in 1908, they got involved with a shootout with local authorities in Bolivia. And they were held up in this this place, and they were shooting out with the Bolivian authorities and everything. And... Uh, I thought it was kind of cool. One part of the story that these guys, like, they were just kind of, they were brothers in arms, right? I mean, they were, they had each other's back from the beginning. You know, they they led this whole posse together. Thick as thieves. Yeah, and then the posse just kind of disbanded or whatever else, but these two guys, they stuck together. Yeah. And they were just, they were each other's best friends. They they weren't blood brothers, but I'm sure that uh, they felt like it. But, so they got in a shootout with the Bolivian authorities, and uh, it is believed that the two men lost their lives in uh, 
in the shootout. Huh. But it's believed. It's kind of like it's believed that Dirty. all of the all of the Nazis from Germany went to Argentina and there and uh many of them are still alive, but no, I thought it was, it was believed that uh, they were all the Nazis were held at the Nuremberg trials and they were all punished, right? Yeah, That's the belief, sing- but in reality they all <laughs> escaped one of them. They all escaped to the Antarctic base. And then they fled to the <laughs> hollow earth. No, I'm not. Uh, um, so I just thought it was a cool story. Actually, whenever we did our episode uh, with the Virtuous Men and we talked about inspirational duos, yeah, I was going to do Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but I was like, I don't know how inspirational they are. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they were outlaws. They were robbing banks. That's they the were thieves. Yeah. I mean, they were, and so, um, so you know, cool. we did the Wright Brothers instead, which is just as inspirational. And that um, was a great episode, by the way. Yeah, less, less, uh, less guns. But still exciting. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that that's good. These stories are so so fun and so uh, you know so interesting to to look back. And I feel like all of our stories came in that like that late eighteen hundreds period. Yeah, which what I think is like that's where like recorded history really started. People started keeping records of what was going on. That there was the newspaper where, where these things were being published. I but think yeah, te- it was still technolo- Yeah, I think technology was. I mean, with the the. The printing press and telegraphs and and trains and everything. I mean, it was just like things were starting to just build. Yeah, and it wasn't so much of, but even, it was still word of mouth. But it was still it was like recorded. Yeah, because you don't. I mean, some conquistador comes through and massacres an entire village of Indians in like 1690 in the Utah desert. Nobody knows what that is. That's like that's not even recorded. So yeah, uh, you know. Because he could have massacred the whole village, and there's no one left to tell us tale. The dead men tell no tales, right? So, uh, unless you're a forensic pathologist, then they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you guys for listening. This has kind of been a fun one, just exploring tales of the Wild West. Uh, if you guys like this episode and you ha- and you think we should do another one, let us know. We still got more, more material, but we like to keep our episodes about 50 minutes. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let us know. Uh, Jared and I always enjoy these types of episodes. There's there's a lot of research that goes into them, but it's it's uh it's fun just yeah. kind of hear these stories, and remember these stories, and it's actually kind of cool because I can kind of whip up some of these stories. Uh, sometimes, like my kids at night, they'll be like, "Hey, Dad, can you tell us a story?" Instead of like making something up, I'll be like, "Ever heard of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll tell them, I'll tell them about uh, uh, Bass Reeves, right? The yeah. the the lawman that that captured over 3,000 people. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, really um, cool. Well, sounds good. Well, to everyone out there, let's build that creed together. All right, let's do it.